Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Future of Tech is produced by Mission and brought to you by Amdocs. Even though Josh Bressers says that security itself is meant to be boring, there are no dull moments when discussing the evolution of the world of cybersecurity, especially because security is truly a never-ending journey. Josh leads the product security group at Elastic, and in his previous role at Red Hat, he was a cybersecurity strategist and product manager, leading the security strategy in Red Hat's platform business unit. On this episode of Future of Tech, Josh dives into every corner of the cybersecurity world, including how working in open source has finally emerged as the winner in the world of tech, and what that means from a security standpoint. He also discusses how artificial intelligence is taking on a more important role in security operations, especially as more and more people are working from home. Plus a look at the history of DevSecOps and where that part of the industry is headed in a more digitally connected world. And the inside scoop on how hackers are attacking businesses today and what to do to turn them away. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So Josh, welcome to uh, Future of Tech. Uh, we're going to discuss today a lot about cybersecurity. I'm ecstatic to be here. I'm a fan of the show. I've been listening for quite some time now. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I think this is going to be awesome. Great, great. So uh, I, I also was uh, looking forward to, uh, to this episode because there are so many questions I have to, uh, to ask you and to see what's your uh, view. And maybe we'll start with the first one. I've, I've read somewhere or even heard you in your podcast saying that security is boring. And, you know, if I'm listening and, and I've heard you saying it's boring, why, why this time is going to be different? So <laughs> that's true. Why would you have someone on your podcast who's boring, yeah. right? So I would say security isn't boring. Security should be boring is how I like to describe it, where we exist in a world today that we read about these security events. We participate in security in these usually crazy ways where the only time we hear about security is when something is going terribly wrong, right? You never hear about, oh, the security team did their job, nothing happened. That's right. Why would you talk about that? It's not exciting. And so the way I like to think of it is security should be boring in a similar way. I would say accounting is boring, where if you think about 
when accounting goes wrong, it's a fraud. You hear about it. Yeah. it exactly. I mean, or it causes a you know global Chapter catastrophe. Chapter eleven or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right, like two thousand eight. Right, where the world economy collapses because of various accounting scandals. And I think security. I think of it in a similar way. Of when we do security correctly, nothing interesting happens. When we do security, we'll say incorrectly. Everybody knows. Yeah, so I like I like this analogy, in, but to an extent, I I never heard about financial hackers trying to uh, maliciously play with the uh, records of a company. While I did hear about many hackers trying to uh, havoc the uh, the code that someone is using. I mean, sort of. There is a handful of instances actually where there have been attacks against financial institutions. I mean, you could argue, looking at things like cryptocurrency today. There's a significant amount of crime against cryptocurrencies, where you have attackers acquiring people's keys and then stealing all of their Bitcoin or, or whatever they have. There's instances in the past of people—I wouldn't say hacking a bank necessarily. It's an insider attack where someone might transfer money. One of my favorites is there was a developer long, long ago that was shaving off kind of like all the remainders of of once you're done, you know, dividing your your dollars and cents. You always have that little bit left, and they True. were they were taking it, and like yeah. that's. That's wild, right? And I mean, that's one of those instances where when security works right, nobody knows. True. But when it goes wrong, holy cow, what just happened? Yeah. So let, let's go back in history. You worked for many years in Red Hat, and then uh, you moved yep, yep. to Elastic. What what made me move? Well, why is uh, you know? Sure, sure. Well, so let me let me just start with kind of what I'm doing today, sure. and then we can sure. So what I do today is I head up the group called Product Security at Elastic, and Elastic is the company that has Elasticsearch and the Elastic Stack or the Elk Stack. It's known by several names, and the idea is we have this distributed data store, Elasticsearch, and my job is to keep our product secure, and that's everything from dealing with security vulnerabilities, helping developers with secure coding. Understanding kind of what is happening in the universe and what should we be thinking about in the products, and so when I when I try to always describe what I do, of course, the the interesting thing I would say is, oh, I stop the hackers, which is of course that that's what I tell my mom. But <laughs> I would hope the people listening to this show don't don't have to accept that as the answer. And so it it's really cool because I would say if you look at the world today, data, you know, everyone keeps saying data is a new oil, and so this is a topic I've become very interested in, and obviously it's a perfect fit because. At Elastic, data is everything, right? Everything Elasticsearch does revolves around data, and so that's really exciting to me. And so, kind of taking a step back from that now is I was at Red Hat for a long time, and long ago I decided open source is what I wanted to do. I was probably fifteen, sixteen years old. Like I'm an old man now, but when open source was real, like when when Linus was creating Linux and all of this was happening, you know, I was young and I looked at that and thought. This is amazing. I want to participate in this universe. And this was—I mean, this was back in the day when people would say, like, "Oh, I don't know about this open source thing. We don't know if it's going to catch on." Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it wasn't. I did not have a clear career path at that time. I just thought I really like this stuff and I really want to be involved. And I was a broke college kid with no money, so it was great because <laughs> free stuff, right? Who doesn't like that? Yeah. So anyway, and then I find myself at Red Hat eventually, and obviously. At Red Hat, open source was everything. That's just the whole business model was open source, and so I was ecstatic. And I did, I would say, a very similar job for Red Hat, where it was 
protecting the products, fixing security vulnerabilities. And I mean, back then we were, we were building the train as it went down the tracks because there was open source security. What was that? Nobody knew. And in fact, I mean, that was one of the, one of the big selling points Microsoft would use was, oh, open source, it's insecure. You can't trust those guys. You know, it's just a bunch of hippies in their basement or whatever. And it was, <laughs> it was wild times for sure. And so anyway, the operating system was everything back then, right? Back in the early days of dot-com and just everyone figuring out the internet and everyone figuring it open source. It was, it was an amazing time to be involved in computing. And well, we figured it out. <laughs> That's kind of how I would describe it, where if you look at operating systems today, no one waits for the new version of Windows to come out anymore. No one waits for the new version of Linux to come out anymore. It's just, I use a computer. It just works. I mean, I remember long ago spending weeks setting up my computer just the way I want. Yeah. And now, I don't know, five, 10 minutes maybe. And I'm like, yeah, this is good enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so anyway, and that kind of leads into the next chapter of my life was, well, okay. So operating systems, what, what now, right? What is the thing that is driving the world forward? And it is unquestionably data. If you look at it today. So when I look into what you just said, and, and I think about, you know, open source project, do you see security being addressed in a different way today as it was like 10, 15 years ago, five years ago? It is definitely different than it used to be, unquestionably. I think it is more apparent now than it ever was before. I think in the past, it was, it kind of started out with some of these anti-open source companies, which ironically now are some of the most pro-open source companies in the world, but they were using security to sow the seeds of doubt. Yeah. And it obviously worked a little bit, but I would say just given the state of the world today, it overall failed yeah. because I mean, open source won. I remember we would talk about, oh, open source is going to win someday. Open source won. No one is going to argue that point ever again, which is awesome. When we look at things like security, you kind of come back to the question of, okay, so anyone can mess with this stuff. How can we say this makes sense? How can we say this is secure? And like, that's a perfectly reasonable question. And I think it's easy to hand wave it away sometimes and say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to talk about that. That it, It's fine. It's secure. It's safe. And I like to think of it in the context of software in general. How can you say any software is safe, right? And it's a matter of you have to think about where do I put my trust? like. How do I know the food I buy at the grocery store is safe? And right, there's organizations that that help define those things and they help kind of regulate it. Yeah. And software is no different. So you could say, how do we know Windows is safe? And in this particular instance, we trust Microsoft. We could say, how do we know Linux is safe? And you could say, well, who do I trust? And this is where things really kind of get wild in the open source world. But I think it's also part of the power is back in the day, Microsoft would say, oh my goodness, look at this open source thing. Anyone can contribute. Yeah. And they thought that was a bad thing. And it turns out actually it's the awesome thing that makes it all work. And so we look at open source and we can say, okay, anyone can look at this. Anyone can participate. Anyone can contribute. And so what we're seeing happen is there's lots of people involved in security of open source. There's lots of companies involved in security of open source. You have things like Google Project Zero, which literally has some of the best minds in security on the planet working primarily on open source, quite frankly. You have the, all these companies now that are investing in creating technologies to 
understand what's happening in the security world of open source. You have all these scanners, for example, yeah. GitHub literally has a security scanner now built into GitHub. And so I would say the question isn't so much is open source secure, but rather is closed source secure because I can look and see what's happening in this in the open over here, but I have no idea what's happening over there. Got you. And and when it comes to, you know, open source even took one leap further in, in there is now security project within the open source communities such as uh, OpenSSL and others. How, how do you find those? How do you find, you know, now security being treated as, as yet another project within this uh, domain? I mean, it kind of always was. I think OpenSSL has been around, it might predate the Linux kernel even. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, mm -hmm. but like OpenSSL is very old. Yeah. And in fact, it, <laughs> I remember a lo long, long ago, kind of a history lesson for, for the listeners is a, a very long time ago, there was the RSA algorithm, which yep. is what kind of all of public key cryptography was built on back in the day. And it was patented in the United States. And ironically, it expired on my birthday, which I thought was a hilariously awesome thing. So what happened was all these people in Europe said, well, we want a security library for doing things like HTTPS, which was really, really hard a long time ago. We think of it now as like, oh, whatever, just yeah. let's encrypt and, and it all works. But it, <laughs> you could make a career on setting up HTTPS web servers because it was so difficult to do. <laughs> and so anyway, these people basically, they didn't want to pay RSA to make you know, it was SSL back then work and they built their own library. And it was, I mean, it was a, kind of the amazing power of open source in that way. And so kind of, if you were in the United States, you technically couldn't legally use open SSL because of the patent restrictions. But I mean, I have a strong suspicion. Most people didn't care. It's, it's kind of the heart and soul of it all, I think. And security these days, I mean, everything is encrypted. You don't have non-encrypted communications on the internet. I, I mean, hardly at all now. And so I would say security in that regard is just, it just is, right? It's expected. And I think how it works and the vast majority of these libraries are built on top of OpenSSL in, in many, many instances. It's literally driving our world. So to an extent, are we on the way to make security boring as we started our discussion or is it still <laughs> not yet there? I, I think we're on the right path is what I would say, but I think we have a lot of work to do. And there is many aspects of this. One of the interesting things I think about security is we often say security, but it can mean a number of things. It can mean application security, kind of more of what I do. It can mean operational security, where you have someone in a data center, in a SOC, a security operations center that's working with a SIM, you know, a security um, information and event manager is what that stands for. And these are people parsing log files and events and all this information and trying to understand what's happening in my environment. You have people who come in and investigate what happened after the fact, where if you do, let's say, get hacked, you have to figure out what happened. What, you know, what do I need to figure out? What, what do I need to worry about? Who do I need to call? Who do I need to email and say, oh, your information has been stolen? And so you've got these auditors and investigators, and there's compliance as part of this, where you hear about things like, you know, a SOC 2 compliance or PCI compliance or, or some of these, all, you know, all these acronyms. There's, there's hundreds of compliances you can yeah. have. And so it, it's a lot of things. And I think parts of this, like I would say compliance is 
I, I don't want to call it boring, but let's say it's less exciting maybe than some of the other things. I think that's a space that is more mature than some of the other areas. Application security is more exciting than I wish it was. <laughs> I think I think doing investigating breaches, that is that is a wild job because you literally come in and you have no idea what you're going to find. It, it's just it's it's amazing. It's like being, you know, one of those first responders at an at an emergency. Yep. So let, let's let's be a bit practical. If if you are working sure. in in a in a big environment, a big enterprise, what what's the difference um, in terms of how you address today's infrastructure when it comes to cybersecurity, and how how did it change in the recent few years? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, you could even argue this has changed drastically in the last couple of months. I mean, we exist in probably the most wild time in recent history with the pandemic and everything happening. And so you see now everyone's working from home. Now projects are moving to cloud. Now it's literally everything as a service because you don't have someone to help you, you know, schlep servers or, or do whatever you need to do. And so it, it's absolutely amazing. And so I think from a security perspective, the biggest change we have seen is you've gone from kind of a, a controlled environment where you might have a data center and you have a wire coming into the data center and all of your data is over that wire and everything you're doing exists inside of a room in a building you have access over. And that is out the window now. You have people at home. Now, I mean, your data center includes, you know, your CFO's living room, maybe. Yeah. It, it, you, who knows? Because you have all of this stuff everywhere. And so this is where the data story, I think, becomes huge in security because now we have all of this information. We have to make sense of it. Humans are notoriously bad at boring, repetitive tasks. I mean, right, we've all been there where we will do something a hundred times in a row and you don't even know what you're doing by the end of it because it's just so boring and you're sick of doing it. And things like reviewing log files is one of my favorite examples. If you've ever scrolled through, let's say, hundreds of pages of log files looking for something, after about page three, you have no idea what you're looking at. You've quit paying attention. And this is where using things like a, a sim are enormous. Because you can let that thing do all of the boring work, and then the humans can look for the interesting things that you need a human to do. Where you can, like one of my favorite examples is if you see someone log in from, let's say, Washington, D.C., and three minutes later log in from Moscow, Russia, right? They did not travel to Russia. What is going on? And that's the sort of thing assuming, a human Assuming you know the do. difference, yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Exactly. But like a human would probably not be able to pick that out. But if you have technology parsing all of your information and looking for certain things, right, it picks it up like that. As soon as it happens, it knows it's happened and it can tell a human, go figure this out. And it could be maybe it's an attack. Maybe you've got someone using a VPN. Uh, you know, maybe someone had their kid accidentally log in on their computer in the den while they're on a business trip. You know, who knows what it could be? But this is the kind of thing that I think is really changing the way we look at security in general is we, we, we've always had this data. We just didn't know what to do with it in the past. And so now we're at a point where it's just, it is fascinating to look at all of the cool things we're doing, all of the companies doing amazing things. Now, all of the open source projects doing this stuff. It is, it is a wild time for sure. So I have two follow-up questions. One relates to infrastructure. I'll, I'll leave it in a second. But one relates to something you mentioned, which is the artificial intelligence. How do you see this plays uh, a role in, in today's world? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it should be a supplemental tool. I think anytime artificial intelligence is brought up in a conversation, I think a lot of people shut down because it was very oversold at the beginning of, oh, it will solve everything. And sometimes it reminds, reminds me of discussions about like blockchain, right? Yeah. Oh, blockchain will fix it. Like, nope, I'm done talking. To you. You're a crazy <laughs> exactly, person. Yeah. The thing is though, with, with AI and ML, and I would kind of, I like to put them in the same bucket because they're functionally kind of the same thing. But when you're looking at all this data, this is where you can start using some of this intelligence to look for things you might not see normally. And I've seen some really cool demos, for example, where you might have a graph of, of data, where obviously your data goes up during the day, it might go down at night, weekends are lower, you know, of people using things. And when humans look at this, they may or may not be able to see patterns in it. And more importantly, is humans have to look at it, because how often does a human look at a graph, for example? While they're at work, probably, then they have to sleep because humans sleep and it's an annoying thing humans do. Whereas you can have, for example, in a machine learning model that says, all right, watch this data. This is what the data should look like. If it ever deviates from any of this, I want you to send me an email or send me a page or do something. And there's kind of two easy examples here is one could be your internet breaks or your website breaks or something and your traffic drops to zero unexpectedly. And here's where if you have some of these machine learning models set up to look for this, they will send you that email immediately, right? Your site's been down for 10 seconds. The ML has told you it's down, not your, your CEO running down the hall because somebody called him on the phone, yeah. right? I mean, that's always everyone's terror there. And I mean, additionally, you can have events where like someone could be doing something unusual on your network. And this is something you see a lot where, for example, let's say you're primarily dealing with, you know, normal web traffic and it has an expected kind of pattern and you see where people are coming from and what they're doing. And now all of a sudden you're seeing very particular traffic from one place in, let's say, you know, a, a country that maybe you don't generally get traffic from. Again, the ML can pick that up instantly and say, hey, go check this out. And it could just be a misconfigured computer or it could be an attacker. And I mean, that's the part where humans still have to get involved. And I imagine as this technology progresses and as we learn more about all of what's going on and we, we build it bigger, eventually I can see us getting to a point where this artificial intelligence and ML can start saying, okay, this is a misconfigured server, or this is definitely an attacker. Someone needs to do something right now. You've mentioned that data centers are now out there, which brings edge computing and, and the edge itself yeah, as, yeah. as something that is becoming more and more dominant. How do you see this as part of the ecosystem? I mean, that's a great question. It's, if you look at what's happening now, I mean, this kind of goes back to some of what we just talked about a few minutes ago about these, what these data centers look like. It used to be a room in a building that you were at. And now with like Edge, Edge is a great example where you're trying to push as much compute to the people. And obviously the advantage being it's faster and it gives them a better user experience, which is a huge, that is so big, especially today as people use computers more and more, how they interact with it is, it's something we always need to keep in mind, right? The user experience is enormously important. And if users have a bad experience, they're going to go somewhere else. So from the security perspective, all of this data is moving closer and closer to the edge and it's getting farther and farther from you. And this is where things like obviously having the ability to gain an insight into what's happening in your environment, wherever your environment may be, is really important. But there's also the issue of actually securing the data itself. And this is things like making sure when you have a database that it is in a it is in a known location and it is secured properly, for example. You you can often 
hear these stories about someone accidentally leaving a database on the internet and and somebody downloaded, you know, hundreds of terabytes of data or whatever out of it. And like, that's a great example where it's being pushed to the edge, but kind of with that great power comes great responsibility as well. So we have to make sure we're monitoring our infrastructure. We know what we're doing. We understand what's happening. And so what I, what I see happening now is you've got all this compute, you've got all this data, everything is going out to the edge. Yeah. And so now the next challenge is how do we make sure as we're doing that, we keep it secure? And like, I, I don't have all the answers. I mean, I wish I did, yeah. but I don't. And so that, that's part of, part of security is it is a journey, right? There's no destination. It's my, the, my favorite example is a friend of mine says it's like the post office. It doesn't matter how much mail you deliver today, more mail comes tomorrow. And security is kind of the same way. It doesn't matter how much security we do today, there's more waiting for us tomorrow. And so this is just part of the journey is now that we have these new computing paradigms, what does that mean? And it's, we're going to find out. I mean, that's part of it. But I think step one is just, you got to know what you got, because if you don't, you're going to have a really bad day. <laughs> this is true for sure. What's your philosophy about uh, zero trust? I know that uh, Google is investing a lot into it and, and other yeah, companies. Yeah. What's, what's your uh, notion about it? Or maybe, you know, maybe start with explaining what it is. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great idea. So zero trust is this concept of everything is, well, <laughs> zero trust is today. Everyone is in remote locations. They have to connect into your environment and so how do you get them there? Because if you think historically, when you had your data center in a room in a building, you could say, all right, any data coming from this network is okay, right? Because it's, it's, it's from our computers. And this is one of the issues you get is attackers might get into your network and they own it all, right? Because now there's very few restrictions inside of the corporate network. The concept of zero trust is trust no one, where any computer connecting to you they have to prove they are who they say they are. And this is from me connecting to my email. This is the computer sitting next to the email server that's going to send email as, you know, let's say our SIM application that's going to tell me someone's attacking us. Everything has to prove it is who it is. And this is really, it's really powerful in this kind of, you know, whole edge scenario we're finding ourselves in because instead of saying, oh, we have to figure out which computers we can trust, you can just say, we don't trust anyone. So anything talking to this system has to prove itself to us, and then we can make decisions on what we do after that. And so I think as we push compute away from the data center out into the world, zero trust is just kind of the natural state everything is going to end up in. Interesting. And it goes also into uh, what we previously discussed, which is people moving to work from home. And therefore, you know, they will need to identify themselves. And, and that's where actually, I mean, kind of on that note to, to, to add a little more is there is a concept called single sign-on when you're dealing with humans specifically, where the idea is I sign in to one authentication provider. It could be, yeah. you know, someone like Okta, someone like Google, someone like Microsoft. And then those credentials are used all over the place. So for example, I might log into my Google account and then I use my Google account to log into my Slack account right? Because now Slack doesn't actually know anything about me. They're saying, we trust Google to tell us who you are. And that's a powerful tool we have because I was talking a long time ago to, I think it was one of the Microsoft identity people who was running their single sign-on. And this is kind of blew my mind at the time is he was saying they see about, a, this, was, this was a long time ago. So I'm sure this number is magnitudes higher now, but they were seeing 11 million 
attempted attacks per day against their single sign-on server of people trying to log in with bad passwords or, or whatever, right? It could be a million things. And that really, that's, that's a powerful thing to think about because when you have this central authority, they have the ability to say, okay, this person is an attacker over here. We're just not going to let them in ever, right? Lock them out. And so that's really cool because you gain this insight into what's happening really across the world that you don't get when you're one person with three logins on an exchange server in the closet. How, how do you see quantum computing get into this equation? Is it something that we should start looking at or is it something too far away? I am not a quantum expert by any means. So by, by all means, anyone listening who is at me on Twitter, I would love to talk about this. But kind of the view I take of this today is the threat quantum computing has for the universe right now is basically the ability to break encryption very quickly and easily. Yeah. And that is the threat from the security perspective everyone is concerned about. And now when it comes to things like encryption, I will always defer to organizations like NIST, which in the U.S. is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And they, for example, define cryptography standards. They define the algorithms. They say these are the things that are safe to use. These are the things that are unsafe to use. And I mean, this kind of this is part of that compliance discussion of, I mean, NIST is they've basically taken encryption and they've made it boring because they've just said, here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Go. And that's great. I love that because I'm not a crypto expert either. And crypto is really hard. So NIST is saying these are the things you need to worry about for quantum. And it's things like giant keys where the, the old RSA algorithm actually might be more secure for us with huge keys versus the modern ECC, which is elliptical curve cryptography. And then they're also working on new algorithms to prepare us for the day that our existing public key cryptography could fail under quantum. And so I sleep well at night knowing there are very, very smart people working on this problem, and I don't have to be one of them, which is great. I would like to talk a bit about the operational aspect of, of security. And maybe uh, pick your brain when it comes to um, the way we operate today, the method of uh, operating, you know, we're speaking about DevSecOps. So first of all, you know, what's, what's the overall perception of yours into, into it? And, and again, maybe a short history about how this evolved and where we are at today. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So I would say today, I'll, I'll start at the beginning and we'll, we'll walk ourselves back, is we have this concept called DevSecOps that you might hear about. And the idea is it's kind of a version of DevOps is how I would describe it. And what DevOps is, is you're taking developers and operations and you're kind of squishing them together. And in our modern everything is a service world, the idea is that the people writing the applications are the people who are running the applications as part of your service. And in many instances, this works really well. And so DevSecOps is obviously, we want to make sure security is part of this conversation. And I've, I've given, I, I gave a talk some time ago at OSCON actually about this. And I, I think basically I said, DevSecOps shouldn't exist. We should just call it DevOps and security is baked into it as it is. But that's, we will get there someday. And I'm happy to acknowledge that there is value in giving things names. So the idea is though, so long ago, right? When you had your server room in a room, in a building, there would be applications that maybe your people wrote. Maybe you got them from Microsoft. Maybe you downloaded them off the internet from an open source website. Who knows? And you would have the kind of operations people would run the computers. 
And in fact, I mean, this is how I got my career started long, long ago is I was a sysadmin at an ISP. And so our job was to run the computers, right? Like people needed internet. That was our job. Make sure that they had internet. This was, <laughs> this was dial-up days. So we had phone lines and everything. It was wild. But so essentially you've got your developers, you have your operations people. And you can imagine this was not always the healthiest of relationships between the two of them because developers love dumping stuff over the fence and saying, good luck. And then the poor operators have to figure out, how do I make this work? And so when you hear about these people still running Windows 95 in their infrastructure today, this is why. Because some developer gave them something that only runs on Windows 95 and there is no way to fix it ever again because the developer you know, left 30 years ago for, for something else. And so the idea behind DevOps is let's just kind of squish these people together. We will make them be nice to each other, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is always good. And then additionally, it gives your developers a certain amount of empathy with respect to the user experience as well as the, the operator experience, because just running software is hard. Running software well is really hard. And I mean, this is why things like containers took off because containers took away a whole bunch of unknowns of, you know, what version of OpenSSL does this computer have? We have no idea. Does this computer have OpenSSL? We have no idea. With containers, you know it's there because you put it there, which is really cool. So the idea being we bring all these people together and it's kind of a, I think it lends itself well to the everything as a service world because now the developers don't just develop and hand it off. The developers are intimately involved. And I think it leads to a better experience. And when we start thinking about security in that regard, now it's not just, oh, the security team's over here yelling at us because we're not doing something right because the security scanner is saying you haven't updated this computer in six years or, or whatever. Now you've got developers, you have security people, you have operations people all working together, all next to each other, and they all feel the same pain. And so the thinking is, we can use this to basically lift everyone up together instead of having one team, you know, trying to squash everyone else, proving that they're right. Got you. And, and uh, if, if you look at it from, again, from the operational perspective, do you see this as the uh, next norm? Is this the way we should operate or do you see it as a stage towards something? I mean, that's an excellent question. I, from my perspective, what I see today I, I would say this is not the end goal because nothing ever ends. It's always a journey. And so I think this is the next step on the path to probably something else. I don't know what the next thing is necessarily going to be, nor would I dare predict it. But I think from the perspective of making everyone's lives better, I feel like this gets it done, where there's a lot of problems that go away. One of the interesting things you get when you solve problems is when you solve one big problem, now everyone says, okay, we solved the big problem. Now here are five smaller problems we can solve now that we solve that problem. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what DevOps brings us is we solved the big problem of the handoff between developers and operations. So now we have these 10 other problems we need to worry about, which is, I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's how progress works. But it, it's always one of those things that I, I keep in the back of my head is, okay, this is a problem we're trying to solve. But when we solve this problem, what, what are the five things underneath it that we have to now think about solving? I guarantee there's something else that's going to come next, but I have no idea what it is. Yeah. Kind of software development, you, you, you know, you find one bug and then suddenly there are 10 more <laughs> <That's right. laughs> creeping That's behind. right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. What are some of the new methods uh, that attack attackers are using today? And how do you think companies should address those? That is a fantastic question. 
I would not have believed myself probably 10 or 20 years ago if, if I would have answered the question the way I'm going to now. So I think that the single biggest thing we're seeing is attackers are going kind of, <laughs> they're going big, where the idea is a long time ago, when you got attacked, it was often like a, a college kid in his room, or it might've been maybe, you know, an attacker working for some three-letter organization or something like that. It was very targeted, very specific, and you knew they were after you in a very certain way. And I think now you see these attacks where you have attackers scanning the entire internet and they're very opportunistic where they might say, we're just looking for data. We're just looking for logins, for email addresses. We're look, you know, whatever it is they happen to be looking for, it's, it's not necessarily we're going after a company for a thing. It's we're just going to see what we can find. And it is very difficult to know what to look for in some of those instances when you see that. There's still, of course, targeted attacks, which are what we all love to talk about, kind of those movie plot attacks of, oh, they're going to break our encryption. They're going to break into our network or whatever. And there's value in that. But I think the bigger thing is just with these attackers scanning the whole internet, they, I mean, they have the same data tools we do. So they can, they can take in huge quantities of data and then say, all right, what have I found? What am I looking at? And so there's, there's no way to hide. They have immense power, but then also at the same time, there's like a business behind attacking now where, for example, if you want to run a botnet, you can go on the dark web and buy a botnet. And they will guarantee, you know, we will guarantee you'll have X number of infections after a week or whatever, something like that. And this is, I did not expect crime as a business in this regard to work because the idea is if we all configure our computers and we patch them and do everything right, none of this would exist, but obviously that doesn't always happen. And so the vast majority of these attacks are using essentially old problems that have been fixed in the newer versions, but there's older versions running on the internet. And the thing I always think of here is there's a book by William Gibson called Neuromancer, and it's a phenomenal book if you've never read it. I, I highly recommend it. And in Neuromancer, at one point, the, the main character buys an attack from China to launch against a network. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever read. You don't, that's not how hacking works. And now it's like, we're literally there. You can buy attacks from another country to launch against the network you want to go after. And it's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. On a more kind of, I don't know, philosophical level, there are so many security companies, hundreds, if not thousands of them. Do you see this as a, as a growing phenomena or are we expected to see some sort of consolidation? I mean, I, I have no doubt it's going to consolidate to a degree. It's like any, if you look at dot-com back in the day, there were more companies than we could count. And I mean, there's still a lot, but obviously in terms of things like infrastructure companies or people kind of running the show, it's definitely much, much smaller than it used to be. And I think this is just how, this is how industry evolves, right? Is in our current system, you'll have new startups show up. They do new and clever things. Some of them do the right things and they obviously succeed. Some of them don't and they will obviously fail. And I mean, we even see this in the open source world to a degree where you have open source projects that succeed and do really well. You have open source projects that, well, no one really cares about. So whatever. And, and if the developer's happy being, you know, a guy in his basement doing it on the weekends, that, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, I mean, obviously in business, you got to pay the bills. So <laughs> yeah, it's a little different in that regard. But I think this is how 
this is how this, the industry evolves. I think it's totally expected and, and healthy and it's awesome. It's so much fun watching what all these companies are up to and kind of the clever things they do because there's nothing more pleasing than reading, you know, watching someone's presentation or reading their white paper or learning about them and saying, wow, that is a really cool technology. I, I'm really impressed by what they're up to. So while we're at it, another philosophical question. Go back in history to the days you mentioned about seeing uh, Linus and, uh, and you want to be part of this open source and everything. And like a few years down the road, you're now today looking back. Uh, have you ever figured that you'll go into uh, security back then or, or you are uh, thinking about I, different? I, I did. <laughs> so actually, funny enough. There's a book by a guy named Joseph Men called Cult of the Dead Cow. It just came out a couple months ago. And it kind of, it, it traces a lot of the history of this well-known hacking group called, their, their name is literally Cult of the Dead Cow. They, they loved having a silly name. And way back when I was young, there were all these, you know, computer hacking was starting to get a lot of attention. You had the 2600 crew, you had Cult of the Dead Cow, you had Loft Heavy Industries, the movie Hackers came out. It was one of those things I looked at and thought, this is really cool. I would really like to get into this industry at some point. But I, I also, I will say, I made the decision I'm going to not get arrested or go to jail by breaking the law because that probably will end badly. <laughs> so, so I made a point of staying on the right side. of On the right side. Exactly, exactly. But like there were all these amazing role models back when I was young. And so, yeah, it was definitely, you know, I, I, I used to tell myself when I was, was a young lad was I want to do open source or I want to do security. Because back then there wasn't a lot of security happening in open source. So it's like, it, it didn't really occur to me that, oh, hey, these are eventually going to come together. And of course they did. And so I got to do open source security, which, <laughs> which is awesome, right? It's like, it's exactly where I hoped I would be, but I didn't even know it. So now let's, let's come back to old days. What are some of the biggest questions uh, that you are maybe, I don't know, two or three of them, if you need to, uh, to look into uh, cybersecurity today. What are the, um, the areas that we are facing or the challenges that we're facing today, which are the highest risk? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. So I think the number one problem we have today is the volume of information security professionals have to deal with. And because even with the tools we have, there's an enormous amount of difficulty just sifting through it. Or for example, there's a concept called alert fatigue, where if you, let's say, have an alert popping up on your screen every second, you're going to start ignoring it. And in fact, there were studies done, I forget which university did this, but basically they, they were popping like windows up on someone's screen. They asked them to do a task and they had warnings appear. And eventually they switched the language of the warnings and they asked the people at the end, then like, what language are the warnings? And they said, well, English, right? Like they weren't even looking at it. They had no idea that the language had changed at all. And so, I mean, this is one of the challenges. When you're a security person, you get this alert fatigue where there's just so much happening so often, eventually you tune out what's going on and you're going to miss the important events. This is where, you know, back to ML and AI, that's where we, like, we need the computers to do the stupid work. We need the humans to do the smart work. And so that's, that's obviously a huge aspect of that right there. I think the second thing is that we have to always keep in mind that we are in the middle of enormous disruptive change in IT where we're transitioning into cloud, we're transitioning into edge computing. We have people are walking around with devices on them. There's all these new and interesting things happen. And one of the historical, I guess, annoyances, I would say, of security is security is often known as the department of no, where you'll say, I want to run this new thing. And they just say, no, they don't even talk to you. They're just, <laughs> nope, you can't do it. And 
that doesn't work because you hear you've heard of shadow IT, I'm sure at some point where you know you'll come to someone and say, oh, I want to do this, and security says no, and you're like, well, screw it, I have a credit card, it's five bucks a month for this service, I'm just going to go get it. And so, I mean, that right, not knowing about it is more dangerous than if it actually was an insecure service, because now you have an insecure service you don't know about instead of yeah. an insecure service you do know about. And so I think that's, that is one of the challenges this industry needs to adapt to is we should not be saying no, we should be saying yes and helping people do it as, as well as they can. There's no such thing as perfect security. And so saying what's good enough and what can we accept as the risk that will help the business succeed. And that's not something we've always looked at. And again, this also comes back to the data story is how do we make these decisions? How do we decide what it does or doesn't make sense? And it's there, there's an old mathematician whose name uh, escapes me right now, but he basically said, if you can't measure something, you can't understand it. And I think that's very much one of the things we need to understand in security is we have to be able to we have to be able to measure what we do. We have to be able to say, if we do this, then this happens. If we don't do this, then that happens. Whereas today, it's kind of like, maybe something will or won't happen. We don't really know. So if, if I'm piggybacking on that, so as a CIO of a company, I have a budget, a given budget. Yep. Obviously, I'm seeing, you know, the world is moving to the cloud. I'm part of it. I've started moving some of my workloads into the cloud. I'm playing with Edge. I have this and that, you know, 5G's is coming. Uh, I see a lot of phenomena. So I'm part of the ecosystem, but I need to put my attention or my priorities per something. I cannot run over, as you, as you say, I can play with all those startups, but I need to focus somewhere. Where, where are the areas that I should uh, be uh, focusing on? What, what are the places I should either fear the most or at least make sure that I'm, I'm playing safe? I mean, that's, wow, that is, that is a good question. My, my, I'm going I'm to be thinking about this one all day without question. So my, my initial thought, though, is if, if you're a CIO and you know you need to kind of be secure and you don't exactly know where to start, is this is where I think having the ability to say, I don't know, is hugely powerful, where just admitting you don't know the answer is step one. And then you can start saying, OK, how can I answer this question? And you could Maybe there's a consultant you could work with. Maybe you have internal staff who are knowledgeable in this area. Maybe you need a new hire that's security focused. I, I don't think there's any one answer I can give you in this regard, just because obviously everyone's story is different. But I would say the one, the one place I would start is just admitting, I, I don't know the answer to this. I, I know I want to have better security in my organization. I don't know how. And then going from there. And I think that sounds kind of like a non-answer, but I think I don't know are the hardest words for some of us to say, and yet they are the most powerful at the same time. Yep. And when it comes to uh, the web scalers, you know, the AWSs of the world and, and the Googles of the world, how, how do you see their approach into uh, cybersecurity? I love what I see in the cloud. If you look at any of the big cloud providers, right? AWS, GCP, Azure, there's DigitalOcean, there's IBM, there's, there's a million of them, right? There's yeah. lots and lots of clouds. And many of them are doing some really clever things. So actually, I've got a, a great story here is I've been running an Elasticsearch honeypot where I basically took an Elasticsearch and I dumped it on the internet with zero security 
which was, and, and I said, I want to, I want to watch attackers, right? I want to understand what attackers are doing and I want to learn from them. And DigitalOcean sent me an email that said, you know, you have an open Elasticsearch instance on the internet, like here's how to fix it. That was cool, right? Like, so I, they're, they're, they got my back. And of course <laughs> I, I, I did it on purpose, but that's really cool. You see similar things where, for example, in, in AWS, they have the ability to, if they see an attack coming from your infrastructure, they'll send you an email right away that says, oh, it looks like someone is using your host to launch an attack. We've actually gotten a handful of those for where we had pen testers doing work and they were attacking other things. And AWS was like, they were on the ball. They told us it was happening, which is really cool. I mean, I know Google does the same thing. They, they're pretty much all doing it. I, I think that's hugely powerful because one, one, of, one of my stories here is if you look at any of the cloud providers, they probably have a bigger security team than you have an IT team at your organization because they're just, they have that scale. And so they can build tools and they can look for things and they can do stuff that we can't do. Cause you know, we're up solving the really hard problem where they're like 10 levels down solving the 300 small problems that aren't even on our radar today. We're about to, uh, to finish and we'd like to end up with uh, maybe a personal question. So you're, you're back uh, yeah. at home and uh, someone knocks at the door, it's the neighbor's uh, son, and he's asking you, Josh, uh, I'm about to start college. Why should I go and, and learn cyber? That, that's a great question. That, that's a f fantastic question. Actually, I, I had someone just ask me this on Twitter not two days ago, which is very timely. So the first thing I said is, what are you interested in? Because I would compare it to, it's like saying, I want to be a doctor, right? There's thousands of types of doctors you can be. What, it, what do you want to do? And this is so true of security is saying, you know, what's your passion? What's something you're really interested in? And like, for example, the individual I spoke with on Twitter was saying, well, I'm really interested in, in testing web applications, right? You have a website. I want to find the security problems in a website, which is actually like, that's an easy one because today we have things, for example, like bug bounty programs. And so you can look at what's an organization that's inviting me in to essentially security test their website. And you don't have to worry about going to jail because you know you're, you have their permission to do this. I mean, back when I was young, if we did this, you, the, you know, the knock on the door wasn't the neighbors, it was the FBI coming to drag you off. So <laughs> it's a little different, but it's, it's one of those things that, what do you want to do? There's so much opportunity. There's, there are cyber lawyers. There are people doing research into new attacks. There's people who do compliance work. There's people who write standards for all of this. There's so much to do. And I think it's also a place that is hugely important because anytime you turn on the news and you hear any talk of, of computing, cyber is almost always mentioned. And so it's definitely one of those fields that I think if you have a passion and you want to learn, there's so much opportunity. It's, yeah, what, what are you interested in? And, and we can go from there. It's awesome though. I would, I, it's an industry that has been very kind to me. And so I've recognized any way I can help out. I totally will. And like, in all seriousness, if you are listening and you have this question, hit me up on Twitter or send me an email. I would love to talk to you about it. Great, Josh, we're enough of time. It was a great talk. I really enjoyed it. It has been an absolute pleasure. I thank you a lot. And again, I, I hope, uh, you know, that someday soon we'll be able to meet face to face. I, I, you have no idea how much I can't wait to leave my house and go to a, I'd, I'd even be happy to go to a restaurant at this point, not even get on an airplane and go to a conference. So absolutely. Same. Have a marvelous day. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlotte, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.